and Dennis up. Let's give them a round of applause. Mims, if you could sit here. Would you like a glass of water? Dennis, are you okay? You will. How are you doing? Or oh, should we switch you on? Oh, yeah. Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, that's oh. fine. Wonderful. Oh, thank you. Well, it's lovely to um, be able to share this evening with you. Thank you thank for you. being willing to do this. Uh, first of all, on behalf of the church, uh, we want to say how much we love you. And uh, you are such a blessing to us in the short time you've been with us. Uh, how long have you been with us uh, at the church here? No. You'll have to use that microphone if you're going to speak, Dennis. Apologies. Uh, we first came just before COVID, um, uh, probably in the January time, just for a couple of months. And obviously, with COVID shut down, um, obviously, we couldn't come back. And then we've probably been coming back, oh, I don't know, six to eight months now consistently. I think so. I would yes. think. I agree with you, Hermes. Yes. And just to, just to clarify, if um, people are confused with your accents, um, where they come from. So, Mims, where are you from? God's own country, Wales. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, and I'm a Brummie. I'm from there Birmingham. You go. There you go. So, if you need um, help understanding, for me. we will have subtitles available <laughs> on the recording. <laughs> anyway. Thank you. Shall I just pray for you? Yes, please. Father God, we just thank you for Dennis and Mims, and thank you for bringing them uh, to our fellowship. We love them, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for the blessing that they are to us. And uh, we thank you for their courage in being willing to share their stories uh, tonight with us. Lord, we pray your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mims, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Okay. Yes. And uh, I'd love you to tell us the story of how uh, you came to the Lord um, but also some of the background that sort of may be significant in understanding what a significant moment that was. Okay. Well, I came from parents that were very backslidden, and they'd gone away from the Lord way before I was born, I think. And um, I was brought up in a, an extremely, extremely violent home with an extremely violent mom. It was normal for us to be pulled around, kicked around by her, pulled by our hair around the room. It was normal. Though we, were four we are four girls, four lovely sisters. We weren't allowed to talk to each other. We weren't allowed to connect or communicate. She was very coercive and extremely violent. And when I was 16, I really wanted to go nursing. I wasn't allowed. I had to go and get a job in this awful shop that I absolutely hated. But that's what I had to do. There was no ifs, there was no buts. That's what you did. You didn't quarrel back with my mom. You didn't, and you certainly didn't answer back. So I went to work, and when I was 17, I met this young man. And he, at the time, was my, I guess, heaven, moon, and stars. I thought he was the best thing that God had ever put breath into. But I have to say, five years into that relationship, I was battered. I was hospitalized more times than I can remember. To do the A&E round was quite normal. I've had my face smashed so many times by him. And the abuse of alcohol was incredible because I was hiding away from all the pain and really all the damage that this man was creating within my world. He'd cut me off from all my family completely and battered me pretty much day and night, to be honest. And I was petrified of him. And somebody asked me once, why didn't you leave him? And I said, when someone has control of your mind and your money, they have control of your life. And I was so frightened of him. And then there was the tug between my mum and dad and him. So the pain and the unbearability between the two of them had got to a point 
where I just couldn't take any more. You see, it was normal for me for the police to bring me home, and I would slide down the wall, and that my mom would catch me the other end. And this went on for years. This wasn't just the one-off. I lost my job because I was drunk in the afternoon. You see, I, I'm really dyslexic, so I'm very, very good mechanically. And I used to work in a factory on the multi-lave spindles. Probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, but I loved it. I, I'm an engineer by heart. I could take your car apart and run it on the floor. I'm just one of them. And I lost my job. I used to rally drive, would you believe it? I was really good. Anyway, um, and I lost my job because I, he said, you can't continue to put yourself at such risk and others because of your alcohol abuse. I was 20, and I looked 40. I was battered and damaged and broken by a mom, and now by this man. And it went on for five years, pretty much. And then, um, within that time, I couldn't take any more of the pull between the parents and Brian. His name was Brian, and I couldn't take any more. And I, I went upstairs one night, and, and I, just, I, I just took tablets because I couldn't take any more. And my sister at the time was dating this young man, Stephen, and who she married anyway. And she just shot up one, after one evening, and she said, Stephen, I've got to go home and find my sister. And she's running through the house saying, where's my sister? Where's my sister? And my mom said, she's gone to bed. I hadn't gone to bed. I'd gone to die because I couldn't take any more. I had got to a stage where I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't cope. And I was taken into hospital and all that goes with that. Um, now, in between this circle of life, I guess, my mum and dad had come back to the Lord. And my mum used to take me in on any day of the night, any day of the week, most nights, where the police would bring me in, she would take me and she would sit with me and she would pray for me. And I used to say to her, stop that praying. Don't you pray for me, because I'm too angry for that nonsense. I'm in this state today because of God. Why blame God? I don't know. And she'd sit up with me because she was always afraid that if I went to sleep, I wouldn't wake up or I'd vomit or whatever went with that. I was sexually abused by Brian. I was farmed out for everything and anything in your own imagination. And he would still take my money. But in between this, my parents had come back to the Lord. And they had... Now, in Wales, it's a big thing to have a campaign. So they had this... A bit, it was big. And they had this man came over from Northern Ireland, and his name was Sid Murray. And he was quite a recognized evangelist in James McConnell's church, and he came for the week. And I never really had a relationship with my parents. One, I wasn't allowed, and two, I was too damaged to even consider having talking. And they invited me to go, and I can see myself now. I was sitting in the kitchen, and my mom said, would you like to come to church? Well, I went, yeah. She went, really? I went, Yeah. So I thought what I would do, because I, I lived, I was, I lived like a prostitute, I was. That's what he used me for. And I had nothing much to wear, so I thought I'd make an effort and look worse than normal. <laughs> you know, and use your imagination. And I had a drink as normal. So I got to the church, and it was the old pews, I guess, and the church was packed. So I thought, oh, I've got an audience now with all. And every seat was full, except my end and my mother's end. And she is praying her heart out, because I can see her. And I'm whispering, stop that praying. So this man, this old to me, he was old. He got up, and he took a scripture, and he said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away, and all things can become new. So now I am annoyed so then he starts to say how he was a drunk. Now I am double annoyed. And how he lived in the gutter. And now he farmed his wife, Lily, out as a prostitute. 
So after the service, I was out of that seat and I was at my dad at the back and I said, how dare you tell that old man about me? And my dad's pinned almost against the wall. He's like five foot two, my dad, and he's pinned. He said, I've never spoke to him. I've only met him tonight like you have. So I went home in a right mood and a half. Got home and I thought, right then. Went back the following night, same pattern, dressed nicely, had a couple more drinks. So he gets up and he takes the same scripture, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. So I'm chuntering now. Is that all you've got? You said that last night. My mother said, oh, Lord. But you know what I think was amazing? Nobody in the church said, you can't come in dressed like that. And nobody said to me, you've had a drink. They just accepted who I was for what I was and how I was. So after the service, this old man, it comes down to me. And I'm thinking, if you dare. If you dare. Because I'm one hungry woman on a good day with the wind in the right direction. And he takes my hand. I said, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. So he backs off. And he said, I've been praying for you. And God has given me a verse for you. I went, oh, yeah. Another verse, same one. He said, the Lord's asked me to say for you to trust the Lord with all your heart. I thought, yeah, right. So off I went home, and the first time in years, I cried. And I said to God, God, now we'll have a chat. I still chat to God like this today, I have to say. Now, God, if you're as real as that old man says that you are, now, you have to change my life, not because that man has said it, because words are cheap. I've heard words. I've had words. You've got to change my life, and you've got to do it inside, and I've got to know it. And I thought, God might be able to do that. I've heard about the miracles, the loaves, the fish, and all that, you know. But you have to take Brian away from me without him laying a finger on me. Now, he has battered me for less. So the following night, everybody goes off to church, and I'm left in the house on my own. So I call Brian upstairs, and I'm standing up, and he comes up, and he's breathing in my face. And he says, I said to him, look, I'm going to become a Christian. And he looked at me, and he said, then I don't want you then. And he walked away. So I thought, he'll go round the block, he'll come back in, and I'll end up back in hospital again. And he never came back. So I ran down that church. It had been a little while now, so everybody's piling out. And I'm trying to pile in. And I said to God, you've got to have me now, God. But no one comes to take, no one comes to talk to me. No one says anything. And then, you know, when you are raw and rough and horrible and God just sends the most sweetest angel her name was Jennifer she was the pastor's wife and she'd met John when she was like 12 and she said uh, Miriam would you like me to pray for you and I said yes so she took me in the back room and she shut the door and then she sat me down and she went and sat almost as far away as Hermes is from me here. And I said, why are you sitting over there? I said, are you scared of me? And she said, no. She said, because I want you to know that if I touch you, you'll say that I've done it. Or I have some magical power. But I want you to know that God's going to do it. And with that, she, as soon as she started to pray, I slid off the chair. And I rolled in a ball, and hours later, I was still crying and sobbing, and I was uncontrollable. So she picks me up, and they take me home. Now, my parents were used to me coming home or not coming home. So when my pastor and this angelic wife of his turn up, and he says, she's given her life to the Lord, and my mom's like, Really? 
And the only way I can describe it, I sat in that lounge on my own and I felt this peace that I have never had in my life just take over. It just filled me. And the joy, and I know I've still got that joy today. Now, in settings, that joy can be, I have to write that in. But God knows that I was so broken, he had to give me something that was extraordinary. And the joy that he gave me has never left me. And it just filled me and filled me. And within two weeks, my married sister got saved. Then my two younger sisters got saved. And people would come to the house and say, is it right? I was going, yeah, yeah. And my, and my dad's friend, he used to call me Cinderella because I was always going to the ball. And he used to say, you know, I look at her and she's a trophy now of his grace. And he maketh a rebel, a priest and a king. And just to finish, if that's all right, um, about a month into giving my life to Jesus, it was, it was Easter. So we went to this Glyneth, probably no one's heard of it, but it's a little village down from me. And I felt God say to me, go out and get prayed for. You know when you're first Christian, you could swallow a mountain and jump over it? So I went out. And so this man comes along and he comes to me and then he prays with, with everybody and they're sitting down. He puts his hands on my shoulders and then he said, um, oh, I don't know what to pray for you, so I'll come back. So with that, he prays for everybody and everybody's sitting down and I'm left on my own. And I'm thinking, oh, I feel a wally standing here on my own, you know. And then he said, you know, God's going to give you a revelation in the word. And I howled. They laughed because I am chronically dyslexic. And for me to read in the narrative, I either add words or take them out. So nothing makes sense. So if you ever get a text from me, please understand this. Because if I write anything, Dennis has to rewrite it. It just, to me, is great. To him, it's like, ooh. But for me to have a revelation in the words howling, because I just think, really... Then I went to the Birmingham Bible Institute for a year, which was even more funny, this girl who can't write. And I, I just look at God, and my Bible lecturer was this man, this gorgeous man called Bob Dennett, who I absolutely love, Bob. And we would, yes, and he would meet me in the coffee shop, and we would talk about the four faces of Ezekiel, how it relates to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this woman who can't read. It's hilarious. I think God's got a sense of humor. It fills me with joy, which is loud. And then he gives me this revelation. I love the word. I told you the other day, I've lived in Genesis 6 for 35 years. I think, oh, lovely, look at that. But, you know, I look at God and I think what he's done in my life, how he's really taken this broken woman. And he has, he's, he's, he changed me. People say, you know, but... But how? Well, I don't know. I, I don't. But I, I think to myself, you know, when I laid on that floor that day, he took this life and he meant it and he mended it and he put it back. And he is, I love him. And before I left, before this Sid Murray left, and I'll finish there if that's okay. Before Sid Murray left, he took my hand and I let him. And he said, you know, God's going to keep you on your own for a while because he's got to mend you. He's got to put you back. He's got to deal with you. And every night for the next four or five years, I would trot up that stairs at nine o'clock just to be with him, just to find him, just to touch him, just to see him. And I have loved him and I love him because he's taken this rebel. And the two songs that I always l relate to my life is that an old chorus, and it says, he saw me bleeding and dying down that Jericho road. And he poured in the oil and the wine and the alabaster box. You weren't there the night he found me when I made my way to Jesus. And he found me and he's changed me and he's filled me and he's turned me upside down and my family. Amen. Amen. What a fantastic story. Thank you. You can... Pick that up now, Dennis. Dennis, 
obviously this is all happening in Wales. Can you tell us a little bit of the journey that, about your childhood and how you came to be on one certain day in Cardiff and then we'll go through that story. That, that's a story. I know you've both got different versions of that story. Yeah. But we'll, we'll, there's yeah, the we'll truth and there's Miriam's version. Um, okay. Um, my upbringing was a bit like Mimsy's, really. It was a fairly violent background, to be honest. Uh, my mum was... Um, Honestly, I'm fine. Uh, Mum bought up five of us on her own, really. Skip that. No, no, no. Sure? I've never really shared that much, really. So it's, it's, it's the right time. God's put me in the right place, in the right church, with the right pastor to, to share. And uh, it was a violent upbringing. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. And uh, mum bought five of us upon her own. And He'd sometimes wake me in the night and want to give me a glass of scotch at four, at the age of four. Um, my brothers were uh, stepbrothers. And Dad didn't really take to them, and so it was quite violent. And they were, they were slightly older, so they could fight back. Mum would take most of the beatings, and we would see some of this. And Mum was a great mum. Try to protect us as much as she could. And uh, one of the things that really saved Mum, I suppose, was the Catholic Church and the nuns uh, that would feed us and, you know, patch her back up and encourage her. So uh, I grew up in that and I was the youngest and. Uh, Dad was a very intelligent man, he was Irish, he was from Ireland. He was intelligent and he'd work for a couple of months and make enough money to think, well, I don't need to work for the next nine and spend the next nine months drinking it. And I sort of grew up in that environment, um, seeing mum and, and mum had to feed sort of all of us and mum held down three jobs at one stage. And I used to go off to work with her because I was the youngest, so there was no childcare in those days. So I used to go helping to clean at six o'clock in the morning. So my sort of work ethic comes from her. And uh, my ability to want to provide comes from her. So uh, I, I grew up in that. And obviously violence was quite a big part of my life. And, I didn't do well at school because I was too violent to be at school at times. And I got expelled and suspended. But all the way through, there was probably two or three teachers that could see potential, what I had. And um, they encouraged me and I kept going. And ended up leaving school with, with, with no, no formal qualifications. But mum had said to me that, you know, you need to get a job because there was, there was really not a great deal of money coming in apart from what mum brought in. Uh, like Mimsy said, you know, I used to say to mum, mum, why do you put up with it? And again, she said to me one day, I, I love him and I can't help it, you know, and he'd manipulated in such a way that, that she didn't know any different. Um, so she said to me, you need to go and get a job. And so uh, you'll find me if you get to know me, I'm a very practical man. Uh, very practical, very operational, so, okay. And she said to me, I'm going to drop you there, got off the bus there, and it was in Birmingham. If anybody's from Birmingham, they'll know the jewellery quarter, and they'll know a place called Frederick Road, or Frederick Street, I think it's called. It's from the clock in the jewellery quarter, and it's a big, long road. Well, Mum took me to the bus stop, and she put me there, 
And she said, right, okay, don't come home until you get a job. Okay? Simple instruction. No problem. I could follow that, I could do that. No qualifications, but I could follow that. So I started knocking, she said, knock every door till you get a job. So I started knocking on the doors of all these factories, walking down the street. And uh, I got to number 11. I knocked on this door. And even to today, I still feel I heard a voice say, come in. So in I went, another door. Uh, knocked on that door. Nothing for a moment, then another voice, yeah, come in. So I walked in. And sitting just there was a little old man. He turned around to me quite sharply. He said, what are you doing here? I said, you told me to come in? <laughs> no, I never. So, so we now ended up in an argument with a little old man in this, this shop. And I said, you did? He said, I never. He said, what do you want? He said, I want a job. That was even before the TV series came out. <laughs> I said, I want a job, but I, I wanted a job. So he said, well, how old are you? I said, I'm 16 and I'm leaving school. I think this must have been July. I said, in, in whenever I leave school. And he said, well, go next door, go up the stairs and ask for Graham Allen and tell him Vic Allen has sent you and he's got to give you a job. So I went upstairs, banged on the door, bloke opened the door and he said, what do you want? I said, Vic Allen downstairs told me that I've got to come here, you've got to give me a job. He used to tell you, that's what I said, Graham. He said, OK, I'm his son. He said, what does he want you to do? He said, he wants you to give me a job. So long story short, he gave me a job. And um, I started working. It, it was working as a jeweller's in a jeweller's. And I was talking to Mims, obviously in preparation of, of talking about today, and we spent a lot of time praying, haven't we, and listening to music and, and sharing stuff. And I think all through my life I've been a survivor, really. I think because of the upbringing that I had, that I had to learn you know, to survive on my wits. And, and there was a bit of intelligence in there, and, and that was good. Uh, and I remember that at the age of 11 and 12, we, we knew the nice roads in the area to go to. So whenever it snowed, we used to go there with our shovels and knock on their doors and ask them if they wanted the path clean for money. So even at the age of 11 and 12, I was an entrepreneur <laughs> making money. Uh, and that's just that's what I did. So that, that was that. Then I ended up knocking doors to get a job as a jeweller. And there is a theme. Believe it or not, there is a theme. So um, I went on through life and, and I started to, to make a little bit of money. And I think, like probably a lot of us, I think we, we, we either meet the right or the wrong partner. And I think Mims met the wrong partner, and, and I met a partner that was quite good for me. Uh, and her dad, and I met her, and I met the family, and, and they showed, and he happened to be from one of the houses I cleaned the snow from when I was 16. And um, it showed me there's a different world, there's a different life. Uh, I discovered at the age of 17 that you can actually have cheese and an apple together. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I realised that existed. Why would you have a cheese and an apple together? That's not what you do. But Ray had cheese and apple and for lunch. And he almost took me on as like a father Ray did, which was Rachel's uh, dad. And again, he, <coughs> he was very encouraging. He could see potential. Uh, and he encouraged me to do more. Long story short, I ended up Going to, he said, well, you probably need a trade. So I went off and become an electrician, uh, but qualified as an electrician. And then I came, after my qualifications, couldn't get a job because you needed experience, and I didn't have experience, but I had a qualification. So I got offered a job by Birmingham University. Funnily enough, paid more than an electrician, but they wanted to be a lamp changer. So I thought, I can't imagine myself just changing lamps all day. That, that just would not work. So I said, no, I can't do that. And I spoke to Rachel's uncle, who was actually working in insurance at the time. And he said, you seem quite a nice lad. Why don't you have a go at insurance? So I thought, okay. So I went to the job centre. In those days, we had job centres that actually had jobs. <laughs> you know, uh, quite meaningful jobs, to be fair. And there was this one for Britannic Insurance. And, it, and it said we're looking for, the term they used was the word agents. So I thought, okay. And I looked at the income and I thought, well, that, that's pretty good. So I phoned them up and they asked me to come for an interview. And I've only ever had one boss I've ever called Mr. And it's this chappy here called Mr. Evans. Went to see Mr. Evans. And he was a typical old-fashioned insurance man. He was the branch manager of Britannic Assurance in Harborn. Big chap, lovely chap, very straight. 
uh, and he taught me some commercial fundamentals from almost the moment he interviewed me. And only when you get later on in life and you get more commercial yourself, you realise what he was doing. And uh, told him what I wanted to do, told him what I'd done, got no experience, but willing to learn. And he said, OK, come back at, I don't know, two o'clock and meet the assistant branch manager, Graham Evans. And so I met Graham, and um, Graham said that there's, there's two books, they call it, there's two books available. And I'll give you an idea. Um, it's like living in the best house in the world, one book, or living in the worst house in the world, the other book. So one was collecting money from the Bronx. If any of you know Hansworth, it was Hansworth in Birmingham. If you're from Hansworth in Birmingham, I do apologise, but I'm talking from facts. I know Hansworth like the back of my hands. And it's challenging, Hermes, isn't it, at times? Now, to give you an idea, I was collecting money in Hansworth during the Hansworth riots. So it was challenging, believe you me. So he said, I think you should take that book. Well, I thought, well, that's a simple thing, because I, I knew Harbin is really nice. But he said, no, if you want to do well, take that book. So I said, okay, I'll have that book. And he said, meet me tonight in the pub at Cock and Magpies at 4 o'clock, and I'll tell you what you're doing. So I met him at 4 o'clock. I'd gone home. Mum said, how's you going? I said, I got the job. She says, what do you got to do? I said, I'm going to read all this book. Uh, obviously, my reading was okay. My spelling's awful, but I'm really good at numbers. Numbers is my thing. You know, I can look at something uh, and my numbers are working out and I can read a document and after I've read the document, I can give you a good argument on it. And that's just something I have. That, that's just in that. I'm being an entrepreneur, so it's all worked out good so far. So uh, I went home, read this book, read most of it in the day, got back, and he sat me down and he gave me a list. He said, right, I want you to go to this, these houses and collect insurance money from them. Now, this I didn't know at the time was their annual general insurance that we all pay every year. But back in the days, people used to, we didn't have direct debits, we had a bloke turn up at the door, knock on our door, and take the money, didn't we? And we gave it him. Brilliant. Nowadays, we want to see everything, fingerprints, the whole nine yards. But then days, we knocked on the door, they gave you your money. So I went through my list, collected all this money, got back home uh, to the pub, met Graham, he said, how'd you get on? I said, well, there's my list, and I've collected, I think, nine out of ten. He said, you've done really well. I said, great. And it was, I don't know, £2,000 or something. And he said, do you know how much you've earned out of that? I said, no, I've got a clue. He said, you've earned £221, 10%. It was like a light bulb moment, honestly. For somebody that's an entrepreneur and for someone that's not really afraid to have a go, it was like a light bulb moment. He said, I've earned £221 in three hours. Yeah. I thought I found the job for me. <laughs> and he said, meet me Thursday. Uh, and what we're going to do is start knocking doors. It's back to door knocking. I was knocking doors at 10 and 11, so that seems like I can knock, knock doors. So we, my round was Hansworth and Windsor Green, and he taught me, he taught me so many good philosophies from day one. We, we'd park our car, if you can just try to imagine, we'd find the biggest street, we'd park at, we'd start there, and we would park our car opposite it. Okay? So the first house is there, and we park our car opposite when we're going home. But what he made me do from day one is I walked that way, the whole length of the street, knocking every single door, talking to them about insurance, and then I would cross the road, and then I'd walk back to my car. Because that's the discipline to go from there to there. Taught me that. So I did all of that. I ended up becoming the top salesman for Britannic Assurance. I ended up getting promoted all over the place. I ended up being used to speak in different places. And then I got promoted to South Wales when the next start of the story, when two tribes collide. <laughs> okay. OK, we're going to hear the official version of... Yeah. Um, how did you actually meet each other? Because the wonderful thing is how God works in such details, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that, you know, two people so different, you know, live in different places, yeah. but, but actually could get each other because of the backgrounds. backgrounds. How did you actually get to meet each other and how did that work out? Now you can have the lie, <laughs> but watch the thunderbolt in the first seat because you don't want to be shrinked when it comes down, or the truth. 
do you want me to start or? Yeah, no, uh, let's have the official version. Let's have this and the real. So, now if you live in the valleys, you'd understand there's not a lot goes on, but there's an awful lot goes on. So, you know, if you've been, no, anyway, it's like Gavin and Stacey up here, isn't it? Anyway, sorry, girl. So, off I trot every Saturday to Cardiff with my sister. And uh, we would go shopping, we would come back, and that's what we did. Um, so the one Saturday I took my mum. No. Anyway, I took my mum. And I couldn't find an outfit for a wedding, and I was upset. I was having a strop, to be honest. I was 24 having a strop. And anyway, so I come out, it's like St. David's Hall, I guess, that we had in Cardiff. It was like the new thing then. And um, so I come out, and I see this man standing opposite me, probably as far as you, Jackie, there. So I come out, and I said to my mum, oh, I know him. And she went, no, you can't know him. You're an hour's drive away. Stop it. Stop looking. Stop it. I said, no, I've seen him before. She said, no. So off, left it. Didn't think any, didn't think any more of it. And then just went home. So, and so it was nothing. So that's my version of the story. So then on the Monday, I went into work, because now I was working for this lovely family. I used to run their little shops. They had a few little shops around the valleys, and they were a Christian family, and I used to run the shops. So on this day, I was in Aberdeen, in my town. So I said to one of the girls, oh, I said, I saw a man in Cardiff, and she went, you talking about a man? But because of my background, and because God had kept me on my own for like five years, oh, and it was the best five years, there's no way it was, and men for me would have known from my background, I guess. So I'm, I'm there having a cup of coffee talking to this girl called Angela. I said, oh, Angela, I said, I met a guy, in, uh, I saw a man in Cardiff. And with that, it was a bell on the door. So in he comes. <laughs> so I'm hanging around the counter thinking, it's him. <laughs> and she's going, it can't be him. Now the shop's small. I mean, he could. I know he's deaf now, but he wasn't deaf at the time. <laughs> no. I'm just saying. Anyway, and so I was going, it's him, it's him. So he turns round. Now, put it, now we're in the valleys. Now, this is like 35 years ago. You know, you're not, you're not one of the boys, you're odd. And if you don't play rugby, you play that football thing, you're really odd. So he comes in carrying a file of facts under his arm. I, oh. And then he goes, all right. And I'm no, thinking, no. <laughs> oh. maybe that's a really bit exaggeration. And my first thought was, oh, it's English as well. It's not Welsh. So he said to me, would you like to go for lunch? I went, no. <laughs> he was like, no, you could, be, you could be Jack the Ripper. No. From my background, there's no way. So I've been on my own for seven years and happy as a clam. So um, six months later, every day, he's coming into the shop and asking me to go for lunch. And it's still, no. And then he said, would you like to play squash? No. I play with somebody else. Would you like to go? No. I re no. The answer's no. So then I said, so after six months, the girl said, you just can't continue with this. So I said, all right, all right, all right, I'll meet you. So then I said, I'll meet you at 12 o'clock up the road. So I shot off at 10 to the other way. I changed my mind. She said, yeah, that's mean. I said, I know, I know. But anyway, I know, Amy, it's, it's terrible. So I then hid in the back of this coffee shop. I, I did, I hid. So now you must remember, he still got this very English accent in the valleys, when you, you Gavin and Stacey thing, you know. So he comes in and he says, hello, Joan. Now, Joan runs the cafe. And I thought, oh, he's here. But he won't find me because I'm hiding at the back. And he says, you haven't seen Miriam, have you, from the car? Oh, yeah, she's hiding at the back. I thought, oh, <laughs> Lord, Lord. So I'm reading a book called Light on the Hill by James McConnell. And then he says to me, oh, what's that then? He said, oh, I thought you said 12 o'clock, did I? Oh, I must have got it wrong. Now, Joan, who ran the coffee shop, 
When Dennis was boarding down in Wales, because he was still living in Birmingham and he'd board Monday to Friday, Joan ran the bed and breakfast and the coffee shop, and that's how he knew her. He's like, oh, Lord. So he said to me, you know, what you read us was, it's a Christian book, and it's called Light on the Hill. It's about James McConnell's journey, how he got to White World Church and all that. Then he said, um, I'm a Christian. I said, are you? I thought, oh, not bad. Ben the Filofax. So then he said, uh, I'm a Catholic. I went, oh, that's nice. I said, you know Jesus? Are you saved? He said, I'm just, it's out there. It's out. He said, uh, no. I said, oh, you, know to know, you need to know Jesus. He said, who's his job? I said, who's job? He said, that job in the Bible? I said, Job. I thought, dear Lord, I thought that was bad. So that's how we began. And I thought, you know what? He's not too bad. File of facts and all. He's all right. So that's how we got together. Okay, let's have the alternative version of the meeting. <laughs> Watch the Thunderbolt. You'll need to pick up the microphone again. I think just listening to that, there that, that was, that was a number of lies that was already in that. So I think you'll see the type of person that you're dealing with here. So I'll leave you make up your own mind. And we'll, we'll probably actually have a... What will be interesting, Phil, is we have a vote of hands at the end. <laughs> You know, just who you think is telling the truth. So, uh, on this fateful Saturday, there seems to be the debate and the argument for 32 years. Um, I decided I needed some more suits. I was living in Aberdeer uh, at the time now, and um, I needed some suits and shirts for work. Uh, so, as Miriam has rightly said, Aberdeer, if any of you know Aberdeer, it's probably 25 to 30 miles outside of Cardiff. It's, it's not very big. Um, so you'd guess you'd know most of the people, all the shops and everything else that goes on in there. Uh, so you certainly couldn't get any suits or shirts or things. So I decided on the Saturday to go into Cardiff to go and buy some, some workwear. And I've had a fairly successful day. And I'm just coming back through St. David's to go to the car park. Uh, and I need to illustrate this, just, just so you, you see the full effect. So... I think you've already spoken. Just one second. So, <laughs> so you go through the Spock-type doors in Star Trek, and they open. And I look to the right, and I'm going that way. And there's a lady and, and a mother coming in this direction. And I look like I'm looking at Bridget. And I think to myself, what a stunning-looking woman. I did. I thought, what a stunner. And this stunner continues to walk until she's now Martin. Just imagine, that's it, Martin, you're eyeballing me now. You, you, you got the theme, right? Now, Martin, I want you to help me with this, right? Stand up. Come on. Now, I want you to turn that way, but keep walking towards Hermes, but keep looking at me, Martin. Look, no, keep looking at me, rubbernecking. Keep going, keep going. Perfect. Thanks, Martin, just take your seat. So, so... Miriam, thank you. And, and Martin, that was the first time we've rehearsed that, haven't we? So, so Miriam's mother, as I now know, is grabbing her by the arm, forcibly. I think you actually heard Miriam say that in her statement. Do you see the language statement? So all of a sudden, she's grabbed her by the arm and says, stop looking at that man. So she was rubbing me. So that's how I first come across this word. So being now not a door knocker, but I've risen up the ranks of Britannic Assurance as a superstar. That uh, I don't have to work late nights and everything else now. And I don't have to work weekends. But what I had done was set up a, a network of estate agents and building societies in Aberdeer. And for a young guy who's pretty thick, it's pretty, pretty achievable, you know? And so all the estate agents would recommend clients to me and people would go in there over a weekend to view houses and say what they want. And then on the Monday, I'd follow up and get all the details and, and make arrangements to go and see him throughout the week. Good plan. Always worked well. So on the Monday, I went to see Janet at my estate agents to get a coffee and have a chat about the weekend. How'd the weekend go? She gets me a coffee. Janet, a lovely lady, sits me down. She goes, how was your weekend? I said, lovely weekend, Janet. I went and bought these lovely suits, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, I've seen the most stunning girl I've ever seen in my life. Honestly, I did. And she goes, that's not like you. I said, honestly, Janice. I said, long, beautiful red hair, green eyes. I said, beautiful, stunner. She's sitting there like you are, Phil. A bit more attractive, but like you are. <laughs> and she said, she looked at me, she goes, that's Miriam in the card shop. I said, no. 
I said, Janet, I said, she said, Denny's tell me. I said, Green. She said, looked at me again. Miriam in the card shop. I said, Janet, it's not Miriam in the card shop. Janet, I've lived here for three years and there's nobody in Aberdeer, which is only a small place, 26 miles away from Cardiff, that looks like this woman. She said, Dennis, Miriam in the card shop. So I said, Janet, when I finish my coffee, where's his card shop? Round the corner, you'll like this, Phil, next to the church. So round the corner, next to the church, is this card shop. So as Miriam rightly said, I go in and the bell rings and there's this, 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 this body... Face, not facing me, putting the cards on the rack. So I can't see a face, but I can see a body. So I open the door, and it goes, ding! And it turns around, and it was Miriam. She looks at me, she, and we both looked at it and said, it's you, she goes, it's you. And everything else is absolutely right about, oh, you're English, yes, it's true. I had a file of facts, yes, it's true. Yes, I had a mobile phone that was the size of a house brick and was an absolute <laughs> fortune to run. All that is true. I then spent, and I think six months is probably an understatement, pursuing her, you know. we now got movies coming out, Top Gun 2, haven't we, right? Well, this was during Top Gun 1. Now, I sent a sales team of six, six grown adults under instruction from their boss into the card shop, which is not very big, to serenade woman. I would put money through the letterbox of the shop to say, give me a call. There's the money. It's not going to cost you anything. Look, we'll leave your time. I kept the money. Kept the money. Never made the phone call. And I pursued her. We would arrange to meet. And Joan was a great assistant. She really was. She was, Dennis, if she's not there, she's going to be there. Because there wasn't many places to eat. Uh, the conversation on Light on the Hill, though, was a bit more interesting. Uh, she was a bit blunt. I have to be honest. She, she softened it for tonight. So we were reading this book, and I said, I'm a Christian. This is how the conversation went. What are you reading? Lights on the Hill. What's it about? It's about a Christian. I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. No, you're not a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it went. No, it wasn't soft. It no, wasn't. I said, you're not saved then. No, you, you say, you're not, the word you are, you're not a Christian. I said, I, and that, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I'm a Christian. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Because, well, that's when we got to, well, are you saved? And obviously, as I alluded to at the very beginning, the nuns and the Catholic Church was a really big part of my life uh, because they supported mom. And so for me, I always thought I was a Christian. Uh, and then obviously talking to Mim's understanding. Uh, then I went, she invited me to a couple of services to come to and some of them, I must admit, fellow said, we're a little bit like a used car salesman. You know, people, is, is anyone going to put the hand up over there? And can I see someone's hand at the back? I thought, this is not for me. This is like an auction. I can't be doing this. <laughs> and then she invited me into a church like this sort of size. And there was a little chap called Andy Holland, lovely guy, uh, st stood up to speak. And he just said some very simple things. He said to me, do you believe in God? And I'm there mentally now. Tick box. Yep, tick. Do you believe in Jesus? Mentally. Tick box. Tick is. Believe in that? Do you believe in the Bible? I thought, yeah, this guy's going well. I've got three ticks. Tick. Yeah, I believe in that. Do you believe the Bible's the word of God, the inspired word of God? I thought, yeah, actually, I do. I believe this is the word of God. It's his breath. It's what's been inspired. Tick box. So I've got four ticks now. And then he said, well, if you believe all of that, then you should believe what the Bible tells you. And from a practical guy, operationally, that makes perfect sense. If I believe all these things, then surely I should start to believe what he's telling me in my manual. So this is how my head starts now to think. This is how I think. And he said, well, the Bible said that you need to be born again. You need to come from your old life into your new life. And I thought, well, that makes sense. He said, you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to physically ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and to change your life. And so I'm sitting there, rationalising in my head, thinking, well, that, that's fine, and that, that's what it says. So when he said, well, if anybody would like to become a Christian, put the hands up, well, first up. Makes sense to me. That's ticked all my boxes. I'm in. <laughs> uh, and that's how I became a Christian. Wonderful, wonderful story.
we could talk all night, but we're not going to. <laughs> we're not, but we're not going to. Um, just if you wanted to say just one thing, um, just in closing, Miriam, what, what would you want to say? I, is that on? Yeah. yeah. I think before my, when my mum died, um, my dad, he, he gave us a little box and he said in the box there was um, just something from my mum, whether it was a pair of earrings or a ring or something. And he had the four of us girls together and he said, just pick something of your mum's. It'll be like your little inheritance from your mum. And I took these little pearl earrings that were hers. They were only tiny. It doesn't matter what, even if they weren't real, it didn't matter. They were hers. And I've always said, Phil, is that, you know, my dad said, this is your little inheritance from mum. You know, the greatest inheritance that mum ever left me was her prayers. She sat for years and prayed for me. But she brought me in for years and prayed and sat and loved me and I think that's the greatest thing and, and I think if I had to finish tonight and say you know what if you have family that need Jesus and you think are so far away and they'll never come well I came I came and I came thank you both for sharing let's give them a round of applause Sorry. we're going to pray, okay. we're gonna pray for you. We're just going to pray for you guys. Is that okay? Father God, we want to thank you for, for Mims and for Dennis and for the honesty that they've um, shared with us tonight about their lives. And we want to pray for them because um, we can tell, even as Dennis has shared tonight, that there's that's still raw in parts. And we thank you that you've um, saved Dennis and you've adopted him as your child and he, you are his heavenly father and you love him and we pray that you continue just to to heal him and make him the person that you want him to be thank you for the amazing amazing way that you brought them together whatever version we believe <laughs> we just thank you for that moment where they saw one another and we don't believe that that was a coincidence or an accident that you um, ordained that. You, that was part of your plan for them. And that blows us away that you work at that detail, Lord, in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for Amimz's faith in you and just that story of your amazing rescue in her life and your grace and your mercy and even in her family's life, the way that that rippled out um, through her family. Thank you for that. And for Dennis too. So we thank you, Lord, for them and their testimony tonight. Uh, it's been a, a joy to be here and share that with you. So we just pray God's blessing over you both. And uh, to pray, Lord, for more for them. Lord, uh, thank you for bringing them amongst us as a fellowship here. And I pray that you would just unfold that reason why in the days to come. Um, Lord, pour out your spirit afresh upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.